Chapter twenty three of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume three, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Gillian Hendry. Chapter twenty three, seventeen ninety nine. Moreau and Bernadotte. Bonaparte's opinion of Bernadotte. False report. The crown of Sweden and the constitution of the year three intrigues of bonaparte's brothers angry conversation between bonaparte and bernadotte bonaparte's version josephine's version an unexpected visit the manege club salicetti and joseph bonaparte bonaparte invites himself to breakfast with bernadotte country excursion bernadotte dines with bonaparte the plot and conspiracy conduct of lucien Dinner given to Bonaparte by the Council of the Five Hundred. Bonaparte's wish to be chosen a member of the Directory. His reconciliation with C.S. Offer made by the Directory to Bonaparte. He is falsely accused by Barra. To throw a clear light on the course of the great events which will presently be developed, it is necessary to state briefly what intrigues had been hatched and what ambitious hopes had risen up while we were in Egypt. When in Egypt, Bonaparte was entirely deprived of any means of knowing what was going on in France, and in our rapid journey from Fréjus to Paris, we had no opportunity of collecting much information. Yet it was very important that we should know the real state of affairs, and the sentiments of those whom Bonaparte had counted among his rivals in glory, and whom he might now meet among his rivals in ambition. Moreau's military reputation stood very high, and Bernadotte's firmness appeared inflexible. Generally speaking, Bonaparte might have reckoned among his devoted partisans the companions of his glory in Italy, and also those whom he subsequently denominated his Egyptians. But brave men had distinguished themselves in the army of the Rhine, and if they did not withhold their admiration from the conqueror of Italy, they felt at least more personally interested in the admiration which they lavished on him who had repaired the disaster of Chery. Besides, it must be borne in mind that a republican spirit prevailed, almost without exception, in the army, and that the directory appeared to be a government invented expressly to afford patronage to intriguers. All this planted difficulties in our way, and rendered it indispensably necessary that we should know our ground. We had, it is true, been greeted by the fullest measure of popular enthusiasm on our arrival, but this was not enough. We wanted suffrages of a more solid kind. During the campaign of Egypt, Bernadotte, who was a zealous republican, had been war minister. Footnote. Bernadotte was Minister of War from 2nd July 1799 to 14th September 1799, when, as he himself wrote to the Directory, they accepted the resignation he had not offered. End footnote. Bernadotte had been War Minister, but he had resigned the portfolio to Dubois-Crancy three weeks before Bonaparte's return to France. Some partisans of the old minister were endeavouring to get him recalled and it was very important to Bonaparte's interest that he should prevent the success of this design. I recollect that on the second day of our arrival, Bonaparte said to me, 
Quote, I have learned many things, but we shall see what will happen. Bernadotte is a singular man. When he was war minister, Ujuro, Salicetti, and some others informed him that the constitution was in danger and that it was necessary to get rid of C.S., Barat, and Fouché, who were at the head of a plot. What did Bernadotte do? Nothing. He asked for proofs. None could be produced. He asked for powers. Who could grant them? Nobody. He should have taken them, but he would not venture on that. He wavered. He said he could not enter into the schemes which were proposed to him. He only promised to be silent on condition that they were renounced. Bernadotte is not a help. He is an obstacle. I have heard from good authority that a great number of influential persons wished to invest him with extensive power for the public good, but he was obstinate and would listen to nothing. End quote. After a brief interval of silence, during which Bonaparte rubbed his forehead with his right hand, he then resumed, quote, I believe I shall have Bernadotte and Moreau against me, but I do not fear Moreau. He is devoid of energy. I know he would prefer military to political power. The promise of the command of an army would gain him over. But Bernadotte has Moorish blood in his veins. He is bold and enterprising. He is allied to my brothers. Footnote. Joseph Bonaparte and Bernadotte had married sisters. Marie-Julie and Eugénie Bernardine Désiré Clary. The feeling of Bourrienne for Bernadotte makes this passage doubtful. It is to be noticed that in the same conversation he makes Napoleon describe Bernadotte as not venturing to act without powers and as enterprising. The stern Republican becoming Prince de Monte Carlo and King of Sweden in a way compatible with his fidelity to the constitution of the year three is good. Lanfrey attributes Bernadotte's refusal to join more to rivalry than to principle. Lanfrey, tome 1, page 440. But in any case, Napoleon did not dread Bernadotte and was soon threatening to shoot him. See Lucien, tome 2, page 107. End footnote. He does not like me, and I am almost certain that he will oppose me. If he should become ambitious, he will venture anything. And yet, you recollect in what a lukewarm way he acted on the 18th Fructidor, when I sent him to second Ujuro. This devil of a fellow is not to be seduced. He is disinterested and clever. But after all, we have but just arrived, and know not what may happen. End quote. Bernadotte, it was reported, had advised that Bonaparte should be brought to a court-martial on the twofold charge of having abandoned his army and violated the quarantine laws. This report came to the ear of Bonaparte, but he refused to believe it, and he was right. Bernadotte thought himself bound to the constitution which he had sworn to defend. Hence the opposition he manifested to the measures of the 18th Brumaire. But he cherished no personal animosity against Bonaparte as long as he was ignorant of his ambitious designs. The extraordinary and complicated nature of subsequent events rendered his position of the crown of Sweden in no way incompatible with his fidelity to the constitution of the year three. On our first arrival in Paris, though I was almost constantly with the general, yet, as our routine of occupation was not yet settled, 
I was enabled now and then to snatch an hour or two from business. This leisure time I spent in the society of my family and a few friends, and in collecting information as to what had happened during our absence, for which purpose I consulted old newspapers and pamphlets. I was not surprised to learn that Bonaparte's brothers, that is to say, Joseph and Lucien, had been engaged in many intrigues. I was told that C.S. had for a moment thought of calling the Duke of Brunswick to the head of the government, that Barat would not have been very averse to favouring the return of the Bourbon, and that Moulin, Roger Ducot, and Goyer alone believed, or affected to believe, in the possibility of preserving the existing form of government. From what I heard at the time, I have good reasons for believing that Joseph and Lucien made all sorts of endeavours to inveigle Bernadotte into their brother's party, and, in the hope of accomplishing that object, they had assisted in getting him appointed war minister. However, I cannot vouch for the truth of this. I was told that Bernadotte had at first submitted to the influence of Bonaparte's two brothers, but that their urgent interference in their client's behalf induced him to shake them off, to proceed freely in the exercise of his duties, and to open the eyes of the directory on what the Republic might have to apprehend from the enterprising character of Bonaparte. It is certain that what I have to relate respecting the conduct of Bernadotte to Bonaparte is calculated to give credit to these assertions. All the generals who were in Paris, with the exception of Bernadotte, had visited Bonaparte during the first three days which succeeded his arrival. Bernadotte's absence was the more remarkable because he had served under Bonaparte in Italy. It was not until a fortnight had elapsed, and then only on the reiterated entreaties of Joseph and Madame Joseph Bonaparte, his sister-in-law, that he determined to go and see his old general-in-chief. I was not present at their interview, being at that moment occupied in the little cabinet of the Rue Chanterraine, but I soon discovered that their conversation had been long and warm, for as soon as it was ended, Bonaparte entered the cabinet exceedingly agitated, and said to me, Bourrienne, how do you think Bernadotte has behaved? You have traversed France with me, you witnessed the enthusiasm which my return excited. You yourself told me that you saw ridiculous exaggeration of the brilliant and victorious situation of France. He talks about the defeat of the Russians, the occupation of Genoa, the innumerable armies that are rising up everywhere. In short, I know not what nonsense he has got in his head. What can all this mean? said I. Did he speak about Egypt? Oh, yes, now you remind me. He actually reproached me for not having brought the army back with me. But, observed I, have you not just told me that you are absolutely overrun with troops, that all your frontiers are secure, that immense levies are going on, and that you will have 200,000 infantry? If this be true, what do you want with a few thousand men who may ensure the preservation of Egypt? He could make no answer to this, but he is quite elated by the honour of having been war minister, and he told me boldly that he looked upon the army of Egypt as lost. Nay, more, he made insinuations. He spoke of enemies abroad and enemies at home, and as he uttered these last words, he looked significantly at me. I too gave him a glance. 
but stay a little. The pear will soon be ripe. You know Josephine's grace and address. She was present. The scrutinizing glance of Bernadotte did not escape her, and she adroitly turned the conversation. Bernadotte saw from my countenance that I had had enough of it, and he took his leave. But don't let me interrupt you farther. I am going back to speak to Josephine. I must confess that this strange story made me very impatient to find myself alone with Madame Bonaparte, for I wished to hear her account of the scene. An opportunity occurred that very evening. I repeated to her what I had heard from the general, and all that she told me tended to confirm its accuracy. She added that Bernadotte seemed to take the utmost pains to exhibit to the general a flattering picture of the prosperity of France, and she reported to me, as follows, that part of the conversation which was peculiarly calculated to irritate Bonaparte. Quote, I do not despair of the safety of the Republic, which I am certain can restrain her enemies both abroad and at home. As Bernadotte uttered these last words, continued Josephine, his glance made me shudder. One more word, and Bonaparte would have commanded himself no longer. It is true, added she, that it was in some degree his own fault, for it was he who turned the conversation on politics, and Bernadotte, in describing the flourishing condition of France, was only replying to the general, who had drawn a very opposite picture of the state of things. You know, my dear Bourrienne, that Bonaparte is not always very prudent. I fear he has said too much to Bernadotte about the necessity of changes in the government. End quote. Josephine had not yet recovered from the agitation into which this violent scene had thrown her. After I took leave of her, I made notes of what she had told me. A few days after, when Bonaparte, Josephine, Hortense, Eugène, and I were together in the drawing-room, Bernadotte unexpectedly entered. His appearance, after what had passed, was calculated to surprise us. He was accompanied by a person whom he requested permission to introduce to Bonaparte. I have forgotten his name, but he was, I think, Secretary-General while Bernadotte was in office. Bonaparte betrayed no appearance of astonishment. He received Bernadotte with perfect ease, and they soon entered into conversation. Bonaparte, who seemed to acquire confidence from the presence of those who were about him, said a great deal about the agitation which prevailed among the Republicans, and expressed himself in very decided terms against the Manege Club. Footnote. The Manege Club, the last resort of the Jacobins, formed in 1799, and closed seven or eight months afterwards. Joseph Bonaparte, Erreur, tome 1, page 251, denies that he or Lucien, for whom the allusion is meant, were members of this club, and he disputes this conversation ever having taken place. Lucien, tome 1, page 219, treats this club as opposed to his party. End footnote. I seconded him by observing that Monsieur Moreau de Worms, of my department, who was a member of that club, had himself complained to me of the violence that prevailed in it. But, General, said Bernadotte, your brothers were its most active originators. Yet, added he, in a tone of firmness, you accuse me of having favoured that club, and I repel the charge. It cannot be otherwise than false. 
when i came into office i found everything in the greatest disorder i had no leisure to think about any club to which my duties did not call me you know well that your friend salicetti and that your brother who is in your confidence are both leading men in the manege club to the instructions of i know not whom is to be attributed the violence of which you complain at these words and especially the tone in which bernadotte uttered i know not whom bonaparte could no longer restrain himself well general exclaimed he furiously i tell you plainly i would rather live wild in the woods than in a state of society which affords no security bernadotte then said with great dignity of manner good god general what security would you have from the warmth evinced by bonaparte i saw plainly that the conversation would soon be converted into a dispute and in a whisper i requested madame bonaparte to change the conversation which she immediately did by addressing a question to some one present bernadotte observing madame bonaparte's design checked his warmth the subject of conversation was changed and it became general bernadotte soon took up his hat and departed one morning when i entered bonaparte's chamber it was i believe three or four days after the second visit of bernadotte he said quote, well Burian, i wager you will not guess with whom i am going to breakfast this morning really general i-with bernadotte and the best of the joke is that i have invited myself you would have seen how it was all brought about if you had been with us at the theatre francais yesterday evening you know we are going to visit joseph to-day at morfontaine well as we were coming out of the theatre last night finding myself side by side with bernadotte and not knowing what to talk about i asked him whether he was to be of our party to-day he replied in the affirmative and as we were passing his house in the rue cesalpine footnote joseph bonaparte lays great stress on the fact that napoleon would not have passed this house which was far from the theatre erreur tome one page two hundred and fifty one and footnote and as we were passing his house in the rue cesalpine i told him without any ceremony that i should be happy to come and take a cup of coffee with him in the morning he seemed pleased what do you think of that bourrienne why general i hope you may have reason on your part to be pleased with him never fear never fear i know what i am about this will compromise him with goyer remember you must always meet your enemies with a bold face otherwise they think they are feared and that gives them confidence bonaparte stepped into the carriage with josephine who was always ready when she had to go out with him for he did not like to wait they proceeded first to bernadotte's to breakfast and from thence to montfontaine on his return bonaparte told me very little about what had passed during the day and i could see that he was not in the best of humours i afterwards learned that bonaparte had conversed a good deal with bernadotte and that he had made every effort to render himself agreeable which he very well knew how to do when he chose but that in spite of all his conversational talent and supported as he was by the presence of his three brothers and regnaud de saint jean d'algerie he could not withstand the republican firmness of bernadotte however the number of his partisans daily augmented 
for all had not the uncompromising spirit of Bernadotte. And it will soon be seen that Moreau himself undertook charge of the directors who were made prisoners on the 18th Brumaire. Bernadotte's shrewd penetration made him one of the first to see clearly into Bonaparte's designs. He was well convinced of his determination to overthrow the constitution and possess himself of power. He saw the directory divided into two parties, the one duped by the promises and assurances of Bonaparte, and the other conniving with him for the accomplishment of his plans. In these circumstances, Bernadotte offered his services to all persons connected with the government who, like himself, were averse to the change which he saw good reason to apprehend. But Bonaparte was not the man to be outdone in cunning or activity, and every moment swelled the ranks of his adherents. On the 16th Brumaire, I dined in the Rue de la Victoire. Bernadotte was present, and I believe General Jourdain also. While the grand conspiracy was hastening to its accomplishment, Madame Bonaparte and I contrived a little plot of a more innocent kind. We let no one into our secret, and our 16th Brumaire was crowned with complete success. We had agreed to be on the alert to prevent any fresh exchange of angry words. All succeeded to the utmost of our wishes. The conversation languished during dinner, but it was not dullness that we were afraid of. It turned on the subject of war, and in that vast field Bonaparte's superiority over his interlocutors was undeniable. When we retired to the drawing-rooms, a great number of evening visitors poured in, and the conversation then became animated and even gay. Bonaparte was in high spirits. He said to someone, smiling and pointing to Bernadotte, You are not aware that the general yonder is a chouan. A chouan, repeated Bernadotte, also in a tone of pleasantry. Ah, general, you contradict yourself. Only the other day you taxed me with favouring the violence of the friends of the Republic. And now you accuse me of protecting the Chouan. You should at least be consistent. Footnote. The Chouan, so called from their use of the cry of the screech owl, Chatouin, as a signal, were the revolted peasants of Brittany and of men. End footnote. A few moments after, availing himself of the confusion occasioned by the throng of visitors, Bernadotte slipped off. As a mark of respect to Bonaparte, the Council of the Five Hundred appointed Lucien its president. The event proved how important this nomination was to Napoleon. Up to the 19th Brumaire, and especially on that day, Lucien evinced a degree of activity, intelligence, courage, and presence of mind which are rarely found united in one individual. I have no hesitation in stating that to Lucien's nomination and exertions, must be attributed the success of the 19th Brumaire. The general had laid down a plan of conduct from which he never deviated during the 23 days which intervened between his arrival in Paris and the 18th Brumaire. He refused almost all private invitations in order to avoid indiscreet questions, unacceptable offers and answers which might compromise him. It was not without some degree of hesitation that he yielded to a project started by Lucien, who, by all sorts of manoeuvring, 
had succeeded in prevailing on a great number of his colleagues to be present at a grand subscription dinner to be given to bonaparte by the council of the ancients the disorder which unavoidably prevailed in a party amounting to upwards of two hundred and fifty persons animated by a diversity of opinions and sentiments the anxiety and distrust arising in the minds of those who were not in the grand plot rendered this meeting one of the most disagreeable i ever witnessed it was all restraint and dullness bonaparte's countenance sufficiently betrayed his dissatisfaction besides the success of his schemes demanded his presence elsewhere almost as soon as he had finished his dinner he rose saying to berthier and me i am tired let us be gone he went round to the different tables addressing to the company compliments and trifling remarks and departed leaving at table the persons by whom he had been invited this short political crisis was marked by nothing more grand dignified or noble than the previous revolutionary commotions all these plots were so contemptible and were accompanied by so much trickery falsehood and treachery that for the honour of human nature it is desirable to cover them with a veil general bonaparte's thoughts were first occupied with the idea he had conceived even when in italy namely to be chosen a director nobody dared yet to accuse him of being a deserter from the army of the east the only difficulty was to obtain a dispensation on the score of age and was this not to be obtained no sooner was he installed in his humble abode in the rue de la victoire than he was assured that on the retirement of rebel the majority of suffrages would have devolved on him had he been in france and had not the fundamental law required the age of forty but that not even his warmest partisans were disposed to violate the yet infant constitution of the year three bonaparte soon perceived that no efforts would succeed in overcoming this difficulty and he easily resolved to possess himself wholly of an office of which he would nominally have had only a fifth part had he been a member of the directory as soon as his intentions became manifest he found himself surrounded by all those who recognised in him the man they had long looked for these persons who were able and influential in their own circles endeavoured to convert into friendship the animosity which existed between c s and bonaparte this angry feeling had been increased by a remark made by c s and reported to bonaparte he had said after the dinner at which bonaparte treated him so disrespectfully quote, do you see how that little insolent fellow behaves to a member of a government which would do well to order him to be shot End quote but all was changed when able mediators pointed out to bonaparte the advantage of uniting with c s for the purpose of overthrowing a constitution which he did not like he was assured how vain it would be to think of superseding him and that it would be better to flatter him with the hope of helping to subvert the constitution and raising up a new one one day some one said to bonaparte in my hearing quote, seek for support among the party who call the friends of the republic jacobins and be assured that sayes is at the head of that party on the twenty-fifth vendemiaire seventeenth of october the directory summoned general bonaparte to a private sitting 
They offered me the choice of any army I would command, said he to me the next morning. I would not refuse, but I asked to be allowed a little time for the recovery of my health, and to avoid any other embarrassing offers, I withdrew. I shall go to no more of their sittings. He attended only one after this. I am determined to join C.S.'s party. It includes a greater diversity of opinions than that of the profligate Barat. He proclaims everywhere that he is the author of my fortune. He will never be content to play an inferior part, and I will never bend to such a man. He cherishes the mad ambition of being the support of the Republic. What would he do with me? C.S., on the contrary, has no political ambition. No sooner did C.S. begin to grow friendly with Bonaparte than the latter learned from him that Barat had said, quote, The little corporal has made his fortune in Italy and does not want to go back again. End quote. Bonaparte repaired to the directory for the sole purpose of contradicting this allegation. He complained to the directors of its falsehood, boldly affirmed that the fortune he was supposed to possess had no existence and that even if he had made his fortune, it was not, at all events, at the expense of the Republic. You know, said he to me, that the mines of Hydria have furnished the greater part of what I possess. Is it possible, said I, that Barat could have said so, when you know so well of all the peculations of which he has been guilty since your return? Bonaparte had confided the secret of his plans to very few persons to those only whose assistance he wanted. The rest mechanically followed their leaders, and the impulse which was given to them. They passively awaited the realisation of the promises they had received, and on the faith of which they had pledged themselves. End of chapter 23